Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's conversation, we'll discuss a rather regrettable week in Canadian politics. The country's parliament drew international attention after it was discovered that an attendee of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's speech in Ottawa, who was praised by the parliamentary speaker and applauded by members of the House of Commons, actually served in a Nazi unit during World War II. The episodes led to widespread criticism of the prime minister and his government, the resignation of the speaker, a diplomatic mess for the country, and a new propaganda campaign for the Russians. I'm grateful to get David's views on the controversy, including why people are right to be offended, what it tells us about our growing historical myopia when it comes to the Holocaust, and what should happen next. David, thanks as always for joining us. It's good to be here with you. As I was preparing for a conversation, I was struck by how incredible the facts are. I'll set them up and then turn it over to you to give listeners and viewers your big picture reaction. Well, Vladimir Zelensky was in North America to attend the UN General Assembly. He agreed to visit Ottawa and deliver an address to the Canadian Parliament, which is a rare and notable event. The House of Commons gallery was filled for his speech with Ukrainian Canadians and other dignitaries. Among them was a 98-year-old man named Yaroslav Punka, who grew up in Ukraine and now lives in the riding represented by the House Speaker. In his own remarks, the Speaker honored Hunka for, among other things, being a Ukrainian hero for fighting the Russians during World War II. He received two standing ovations from those in the House of Commons, including President Zelensky himself. It became clear over the weekend, however, that Hunka had been part of a well-known Nazi military unit accused of war crimes during the war. This revelation set off a domestic and international firestorm that as of today, Thursday, September 28th, has led to the resignation of the Speaker and a political crisis for the Trudeau government. Let me come to you now, David. What's your overall reaction to this episode and its unbelievable set of facts? I see it as part of a string of events that emphasize a point we've often talked about in the show, the lack of a national security culture, the lack of a foreign policy culture in Canada. So Vladimir Zelensky, the most, one of the most hunted men in the world, one of the most important figures in the world, someone on, on whom so much of, of hopes for freedom and democracy in the world turns, comes to Ottawa. And the reaction of the Speaker of the House, the Speaker of the House is, how can I make this work for me in my constituency back in North Bay? So without much vetting, without much care, he just takes someone who I, I mean, I, obviously the, the Speaker of the House has no Nazi sympathies. No one, I'm sure, in the House has any Nazi sympathies. And, but what they do have is a lack of global sophistication, a lack of global awareness. It's just the world is one big North Bay times yes. a billion. And so this is a chance to play North Bay politics in the same way that when the Trudeau government uh, had to deal with the problem of extremism in the Sikh community in Canada, that its top concern was pretty obviously, how do we not tip the balance against the liberals in some close NDP liberal contests where Sikh votes might make the difference? In the same way that when it was confronted with Chinese interference, 
in Canadian politics. It said, how do we maximize our advantage within the ethnic politics of the Chinese community and certain writings in and around Toronto and, and Vancouver? And just it, it, it seems I think this is a general problem of Canadian governments. I'm going to be partisan for a moment and say I think it's worse with liberals than it is with conservatives. And I think it's worse with, worse with the Justin Trudeau liberals than with any previous bunch of liberals. But they just can't see the world beyond Canada as anything other than a game of ethnic politics. I don't purport, David, to be an expert on the, the domestic politics of every middle power around the globe. But my sense is that these issues that you outline are disproportionate here, that uh, countries like Australia, Great Britain and others have a much clearer sense of their own national interests and the importance of setting aside politics when it comes to big questions of, of global security and defense. And I, I completely agree with that. And I, it has to go with a unique and unique feature of Canada. One of the things that makes Canada such a wonderful country, which is Canada is the most secure middle power in the world. Canada borrows security from the United States and has, and basically outsources almost all questions of security to the Americans. As we saw with the, the killing of the, the alleged Sikh extremist in Canada, that that Canada's first intelligence that this was in the offing came from an alert from the United States that one of your citizens is in, in danger. So Canadian governments borrowing security from the United States are then free never to think about these questions. And the tendency, I think, has become worse over time. As I said, I think it is a, a, a special problem with this government, which is partly because they're on such a knife edge of their parliamentary majority and they're competing in so many places with the NDP who would like to take some ethnic votes away from the, the Liberals. But yeah, Australia cannot afford to completely disregard the world beyond Australia. Britain, France, Germany cannot cannot do it. But Canada can and Canada does. And it, it has, I think everyone, I mean, it, it has, look, let this be the worst price ever paid uh, mm. for this mistake. But the Chinese and Indian cases uh, are more serious. I mean, they're less embarrassing, uh, but they're more serious that, that the government of the day simply could not see a national security problem through any lens other than its own ethnic advantage. Yeah. Well, one of the immediate political questions is about who is ultimately responsible here. Uh, the speaker has personally expect, accepted responsibility for inviting and recognizing this individual. The yeah. prime minister and other members of the government have said that they had no role. Uh, the conservatives, however, have argued that as a matter of diplomacy and security, the government cannot claim ignorance. The buck can't be outsourced to the speaker, which is mostly a ceremonial function. David, I, I noticed on Monday that you tweeted to the effect that as the head of government responsible for the country's international relationships and standing, the prime minister has some responsibility to own the issue, especially as it relates to the country's international reputation. What do you think of how the prime minister and the government have handled the controversy thus far? Well, I, th I think you put it a little bit more elegantly and tactfully than I did in my tweet. When I said in the tweet <laughs> is, I made this point about how that Justin Trudeau has this practice of explaining why whenever anything goes wrong, it's not his fault. And, and my question was, there has to be some upper limit on the number of times that you as prime minister get to say, I had no idea this was not my doing. So it does look like, yes, this was the speaker acting on the speaker's own initiative. Why was it possible? the Speaker of the House to act on his own initiative for such a visit. And again, that this is a, the, the, the demands of parliamentary etiquette and keeping and patronage politics in this place and giving the Speaker his reward was more important than the international relationship. And the, so it's, it's not a fault of um, an active fault by the government. It's a fault of design. You, you would think every 
element of this incredibly dangerous trip, by the way. The Russians want to murder this man. The, the Russians, you know, never mind the Indians and the Chinese, no one has a worse record, not even the Iranians, have a worse record for extraterritorial murder uh, than the Russian state does. So, and Canada is notoriously permeable. And Canada had just had a, an extraterritorial killing on its soil uh, uh, by the Indian state. So you would think, we, well, the one thing, so what, the, the idea of the speaker says, here's my list of guests, um, Lee Harvey Oswald is going to be one of them. You, you say, oh, okay, you, you want to have Lee Harvey Oswald? That's your prerogative. No, you can't have Lee Harvey Oswald in the gallery. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Don't be ridiculous. What? And one more thing is like, you, you know, I can't believe that at no point this, did the speaker ever say to anyone, you know, I've got a 98-year-old Ukrainian veteran who wants to come. And no one, no. Do the math, 98-year-old. What war was he in? <laughs> <laughs> What do you do exactly? And again, I say this with full awareness of the tragic choices of Ukrainian history and people got caught up in history. And But you sort of know, like, if you've got a 98-year-old veteran of the Battle of Britain, you're golden. <laughs> you've got a 98-year-old veteran of the war in Ukraine, you'd better ask some follow-up questions. Indeed. One line of commentary that I've encountered in different places in response to this story is that it's something of an overreaction, that the war dynamics were nuanced, and in any case, nearly 80 years ago. And we shouldn't necessarily condemn people like this to the choices of their youth. What what do you think of that argument, David? Why are we right to still be offended? You know, actually, I, I find myself at this point in history not that interested in this argument. And I, I'm very moved by something that a young liberal Ukrainian uh, tweeted in reactions to debate in Canada, which is the thing that bothered this person is, we in Ukraine are generating heroes every day. Hmm. Uh, that we do not need to reach back into a much more difficult time to look for old heroes. We have new heroes. So, so I think one. Of, and I've, I've written this for the Atlantic about Ukraine. One of the things that is extraordinary is Ukraine does have a very difficult political history, political culture, as many places in Eastern Europe do. You know, given the tragic choices that that they face in the, those bloody borderlands between the Nazis and the communists, but. They are generating a new political culture and a new history, and it's it, that that can be honored. Whether this is an overreaction, it, look, Canada invited the, the the victims here are no one in Canada. Canada, there's no Nazi danger in Canada. This is, I mean, there's and you know, there's some there there are mistakes. There's tactlessness. The victim here was Vladimir Zelensky. He was invited to Canada as a guest of the Canadian state. He is in a war for his people's existence. He is himself a marked man. You owe him security. You owe him respect. You owe him dignity. You can't embarrass him. They, that, the, the problem here is not that Canada embarrassed itself, although it did. That every, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, Canada will get over this. There'll be another. There'll be another pratfall. Uh, but the embarrassment to Zelensky in Ukraine—that is going to sting. And and again, this is the thing. Stop. Get over yourself. Stop thinking about everything in terms of North Bay and the Parliament of Canada. Understand that what you did on the international stage, where this is really going to do some harm. Again, the undoubted democracy, the undoubted liberalism, the undoubted heroism of contemporary Ukraine, they'll, they'll get over this too. But that doesn't lessen the fault of the people who made this mistake because out of sheer carelessness and inwardness. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. 
Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. The Hub is publishing a thoughtful essay in the next couple of days about how the episode reflects the historical ignorance of contemporary society. I think there's certainly something to that argument. If you watch the speaker's remarks in hindsight, you even get the sense he pauses as he observes that this individual fought against the Soviets during World War II. It made me think, David, as we move further and further away from the barbarism of the Holocaust, though Jewish organizations will remain vigilant, one discerns that there's less collective attention being paid to resurgent anti-Semitism around the world. What can be done to strengthen our connection to the past and, and enhance our contemporary understanding of the scourge of, of anti-Semitism? Well, look, this, this particular unit, as we all learned, because we all then Googled it, committed atrocities not only against Jewish populations in Ukraine, but it was deployed in Slovakia, where it um, su- suppressed anti-German risings. They committed a lot of atrocities in a lot of places. And one of the in the complex relationship between the Nazi state and Ukrainian nationalism, that individual, they're both Ukrainian units and then Ukrainians recruited to Nazi units and they are deployed in very opportunistic ways. And they're often deployed for domestic repression and because they were given more light arms. The Germans also at some level did not ultimately trust them. So they didn't want, they didn't want them to have tanks and airplanes and the most advanced machinery. They had guns and and more basic weapons of, of war, and therefore they were used more for internal repression. So there's a lot to learn. But I, I, again, I think the, the, the main contemporary anti-Semitism has its own special origins, and it, Canada needs a lot of attention to that. But that's another example of this inwardness problem. So I think the Justin Trudeau government is a little better on the anti-Semitism in, uh, front than it was in its early years. But back then, at the start of this government, they, once again, they the, the way they thought about anti-Semitism was there are certain constituencies that were for anti-Semitism. There are certain constituencies that were against them. Anti-Semitism hurt you in Toronto, but it helped you in Montreal. And, and, and so you had to balance. And, and the idea that there's some moral con- consideration here, or some larger, you know, poli- ideological and political, no, it, they, they approached this at the beginning. And not not today, I would say, but at the beginning, very much about we're trading writings in Montreal for writings in Toronto, which matter more. And so I, I think the lesson to me of all of this is Canada needs governments that are worthy of Canada's place in the world and not so preoccupied with their minute by minute survival. Because it's short side. And the lesson here is even if you think you're being smart by focusing on minute by minute survival, you're actually not because the choices you make in the minute by minute prove to be bad in the week by week. As you mentioned, David, many of us are learning about this history in real time. I, for instance, didn't know that the Canadian government had conducted a review in 1986 of the permissive immigration treatment of former Nazis, and that significant parts of that report have never been made public. Uh, B'nai B'rith and other Jewish organizations are now calling on the government to release the redacted or previously unreleased parts of the report. Why do you think the government has been reluctant to unredact these materials, and do you think they should now? I, I, I have some guesses why they are reluctant to unredact. One of the, Canada was a very different place in 1945, 46, 47 than it is today. And in particular, Quebec was a very different place. And so one of the things you would confront was that the, um, 
Roman Catholic hierarchy in the province of Quebec was a real conduit for escapees from Nazi Europe. Some of them went, went on to South America. Some of them found refuge in other places. And there had been very reactionary elements in that church. There are very re reactionary elements in Canada. And this is a surprisingly pervasive view. Let us not forget that the young Pierre Trudeau in the early years of the war was very sympathetic to Vichy as opposed to as opposed to the Anglo-American allies because of his ideological positions, which at that time were on the Catholic right rather than as they later were on the social democratic left. Um, so I think a lot of people whose names would still reverberate in Canadian history might be embarrassed. I think Canada, Canada also faced a desperate labor shortage. And so it wasn't asking too many questions about some skilled people. And in those day, days that a lot of that, I think a lot of governments thought that the immediate threat was from ideological communism. And the one thing you could say about these people from Eastern Europe, if they had Nazi records of some kind, was, well, at least they weren't communists, because the communists were in 1946, 47, the people who were doing subversion all over the world. And, and I mean, actively, the, the, the Czech government is toppled by a communist coup in 1948. Uh, I mean, th this is a, there are communists in France and Italy engaging in strikes and that are trying to tip those countries to the, the other side of the Iron Curtain. So in the ideological crisis of the time, these people looked like, well, at least they were immunized against the thing we most worry about immediately. So mm. those would be some of the reasons, I th and I, th I think it would be embarrassing. And as we rediscover our awareness of the history of the period 1933, 1945, that should not become a reason to then lobotomize ourselves about the history of the period 1945 to 1950. I want to come back to your broader observation about the tendency to effectively use foreign policy as an arm of Canadian domestic politics. Having spent time in Ottawa, David, I suspect that if you, if you gave politicians truth serum, they would tell you one of the reasons that there is this tendency is because it works. You know, that is to say they're being responsive to Canadian voters. How do we get Canadian voters more interested in and committed to a, a, more, a more robust view about Canada's place in the world and the projection of Canadian national interests abroad? I don't know that you can change voters, uh, but you can change institutions. And uh, so what you can say to the politician is it works until it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. So if, for example, you've developed a practice of ignoring warnings from CSIS because they make awkward uh, your plans for Markham riding in Toronto, those warnings will go unread, they will go unheard. And then, but even if the CSIS doesn't leak on you, and as I said, I know CSIS has been leaking a lot recently and I don't approve of that. But even if they don't leak on you, that record will be there. And somebody will find it at an embarrassing moment. You also, you, you get situations like the situation the government now has vis-a-vis -vis the state of India, where India did this, apparently, it looks like they did this atrocious thing with total contempt for Canada. Six men, two cars. Uh, that, that, is, that is a government that has no respect for the local authorities and no, no regard for their competence, never mind their integrity and sovereignty, even their basic competence that they can protect their own people. But also true, the Indians have been complaining for a long time about Sikh extremism on Canadian soil. And the Canadian government has said, well, there's nothing, the Canadian government says, well, as far as we know, they didn't break any Canadian laws. And you say, okay, what do you mean as far as we know? Well, we don't really look <laughs> because we have a deal. We have the same deal we had with the Tamils in the early part of the 2000s. We have a deal with the Sikhs in the 1980s that has continued, which is so long as you don't commit terrorist acts inside Canada, 
We are not going to ask very many questions about how you raise your money, whether there's an organized crime connection or not. And we're going to ask almost no questions about how you spend your money. And so long as the targets of your violence are outside the Canada and don't have Canadian passports, not our problem. And that attitude, yes, it pays off in the short run in some domestic, but it blows up in your face because Canada now has this huge crisis on its hands. Um, and unlike what happened in Parliament with the 98-year-old former Nazi, the, the India problem is not going to be so easy to get rid of because either Canada is going to have to bust up its relationship with India in major ways, ways that its allies may not go along with, or else it's going to have to as, and I think this is going to be the probable outcome of this case, it's going to end up tolerating. It's going to end up accepting um, an Indian extrajudicial, extraterritorial killing on Canadian soil. That's probably where we're going. The, the, the Indians may give up one of the gunmen, maybe, maybe, if they, but probably not. Uh, and Canada will just have to accept that this happened. There was, and it will be shown to the world there was nothing much Canada could do to protect its people. So again, I'm not in any way absolving the Indians of their heinous act and their arrogance and high-handedness and criminality. But it is at the end of a process where Canada was not being a good global citizen. Final brief question, because you've been so generous with your time. Your point that it works until it doesn't is an insightful one. And one gets a sense that this series of events in recent months, including the ones you've mentioned, but I'd add to the list, are exclusion from AUKUS and other evidence that Canada seems to be increasingly isolated from the, the major decisions uh, going on at the, at the international level. Are we starting to feel those costs and consequences now? And more importantly, is there reason to believe that that may be a catalyst to enhance the seriousness of our federal politics? Well, as, as I've often said here, that my, my sort of Ross, my, my quick and easy solution to this problem is to get a bunch of former security people, a, a, a critical mass of them into the Senate so that there's a part of the Parliament of Canada which is has a number of people who want to debate these issues, who, are, who have the knowledge and of the sophistication. And, and this is a, a big part of how the Australians do better than the Canadians, is their, their Senate is really the place where a lot of their major foreign policy debates take place. You know, their, uh, I guess they don't call it a part of their, I mean, their, their House of Representatives is, is like our House of Commons. It is very local. But there is a part of the parliamentary system that does care a lot about international affairs, that does have knowledgeable people, and that these things are debated. Um, if there had been a proper debate at the time of the revelations about Chinese interference, and not with a view to partisan point scoring, but really about the national security, if there were a place where that could be argued in a way that Canadians wouldn't say, oh, it's, you know, I know which jersey I, I'd share for you know, you had dignity people who are outside party politics were talking about it. There might have been at that point a reaction, which is, you know, the CSIS warnings need to be fast tracked to the prime minister's de desk. And there needs to be a system where if the prime minister has decided to ignore an intelligence report, that that is noted, too. And so later, no one can say, well, I didn't know or it wasn't my fault. You, you had the information. You chose to disregard it for other reasons. That's your prerogative as the head of government. But that's the record that everyone can see that you disregarded it as as the as I say, this 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 uproar over in Parliament is is I think going to distract Canadians from the question of who looked the other way on Sikh activities inside Canada that led toward this heinous and unacceptable act by the Indian state. Apparently, uh, that debate has gone away, but it's it's in many ways it's the same debate, and the China debate is the same debate. That's the kind of thoughtful analysis, David, that we look forward to every couple of weeks. I want to thank you for joining me today and, and look forward to catching up soon. Thank you, Sean. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Gletsch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation.